Good morning. So if we had to describe in just a few words the relationship between God and Israel, how, how might we do that? What could we say? Well, the people of Israel all come from Jacob. Jacob is their father. The son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And God himself gave Jacob a new name. He gave him the name Israel, which means struggles with God. And so that probably is about as good of a summary as we could come up with. To define the relationship of the nation of Israel to God is their, their very name. But today in Isaiah 19, we're going to be talking about Egypt. So how would we think about that? We know Israel is God's chosen people. His Messiah came through Israel. He calls Israel at different times his son or child or wife to illustrate the kind of love that he has for his people, the different aspects and dimensions of his love. They're often a rebellious child or a wandering wife, but, but God loves them fiercely. So what, of his, so what of Egypt? How would we describe the relationship between Egypt and God? I was thinking about this and I thought, well, if it was Facebook, it would be, it's complicated, right? It's kind of complicated because we see, when we think of Egypt in biblical terms, what do we think of? Probably the Exodus, our, our Sunday school quarterly right now is titled Out of Egypt, right? And what does that recall to our minds? The oppressors, the slave drivers, the slave masters, the ones who, who made Israel kill their own babies, the ones who, when Israel complained about the, the, the load of the work, they made, them, they made them work more, and then they took away the straw and made it even harder. This is, this is what we think of with, with Egypt and their relationship with Israel and how God finally used Moses and he used his own power, God's own power, to deliver Israel out from, from the, under the hand of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. But is Egypt simply a villain? Is it just that simple? Not really. Uh, remember that the great patriarch Abraham, he took refuge in Egypt from the famine that was in Canaan. When he went to Canaan to the promised land that God had given him, there was a famine. And so he took refuge in Egypt. And when he came out of Egypt, he was far richer than when he went in. Now, we also know that his grandson Jacob, who was called Israel, also went to Egypt to escape a famine. And there's a whole story, and we talked about all that. Um, he, he was able to do that because of his son Joseph that went in ahead and led the way. And God prepared Joseph and put him in charge in Egypt so that, so that he could deliver his family. And we know, we know how that worked. And I'm not going to retell the whole story, but it's, it's quite interesting to think about Egypt's role in how Israel came to be as a nation. Because in a sense, Egypt was something of a mother to the nation of Israel. One man went in, Jacob, and his direct descendants. One man. And what came out was a nation of a couple million people, all from the same family, all, all carrying the promise that God had given to Abraham and transferred to, to Isaac and transferred to Jacob. Now this tribe, this two million person tribe, comes out of Egypt, a fully formed nation, and ready to begin their, their life and their purpose that God has for them. After 400 years of gestation, I'll call it, in this warm, fertile, well-watered land of Egypt in Goshen, they come out. 
So the prophet Hosea declared, out of Egypt I called my son. And because Joseph took Mary and Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod's attempt to kill the Messiah, the Gospel of Matthew echoes Hosea. But this time he's talking about Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So we're seeing the Egypt's, Egypt's relationship is, is a little more complicated than just the outright villain. And before we dive in to the passage, and I want to read the whole passage today. But before we dive in, I want to take a few minutes to think about Egypt's place in the world, especially at Isaiah's time. And let me tell you, there's a, there's a term of study called Egyptology. That's because Egypt is a big enough topic to warrant its own discipline. It's, it's massive. And let me tell you, it's fascinating. And you can get lost, as I did this week, um, looking into the history of Egypt. And, and I, I was re- reminded when I did that, that when we were fortunate enough to go over to Paris and see the Louvre, and the, they have this big, massive collection of Egypt artifacts. And we... We just about had to drag Rachel out by her hair because she wanted to read every plaque and see, see every artifact because she was, she was fascinated with Egypt. And I was reminded why, because it is truly fascinating. So Egypt's, Egypt's civilization began sometime before 3100 B.C. We don't know exactly when uh, because it's, it's a long, long time ago. That's 5100 years ago from now. Over 5,000 years ago, Egypt started. And just for perspective, when we think of Abraham, he's ancient, right? Abraham is ancient to us. When Abraham went to Egypt to escape the famine, the Great Pyramid was 500 years old. So Abraham went to Egypt and the pyramid was not being built. It was not going to come in the future. It was already an ancient thing. So just to, just to give you some perspective about the place of Egypt in history, it's amazing. That Great Pyramid was 400, it is 480 feet tall. Um, for 3,800 years, it was the tallest structure in the world. And we have taller structures now, but it wasn't until they built the cathedral in Lincoln, England, in the United Kingdom, that we have a, a structure taller than this Great Pyramid. 3,800 years it stood as the tallest. Um, Egypt had two great capitals. One was the very, very ancient, and one was the merely ancient. The ancient, ancient capital of Memphis was the, was the original capital from, from 3100 or so. And, it, and it was, uh, there was another city called Zoan that we don't talk about as much. It's a ruin now. Also called Tanis. And it was founded about the time of Hebron, so also quite ancient. But that was the later capital. Um, both of these had long histories of pharaohs, kings. The kings of Egypt were called pharaohs. There was also a city of the sun. And I'm mentioning these three cities in particular because they come out in the passage today. So I want to kind of put in your mind the things that, that are going to be talked about in the passage. This city of the sun was because Egypt worshipped many gods. But the primary god they worshipped was the sun god. And so they had a whole city dedicated to the worship of this god and temples and and so forth, where they could worship Ra, the sun god. Uh, in fact, our passage today will refer to that city as the city of destruction because God really doesn't appreciate idols. In the time of Isaiah, now, fast forwarding a little bit from all this ancient stuff and Abraham, in the time of Isaiah, the kingdom of Egypt had been a sovereign and powerful kingdom for 2,400 years. When we think about ourselves and our history as a nation, 
you know, a couple hundred years seems like a long time. This is 2,400 years, 10 times our history, 10 times. Uh, that's a really long time. No other, no other empire has even approached that level of duration, of longevity and stability. And, and at the time of Isaiah, now there are rumblings of these new powers in the east, Assyria, Babylon, and these smaller kingdoms. But, gold, but Egypt, that's the gold standard for power, for stability, for wisdom, for economic power, for military, for all these things. Egypt is the gold standard if you want to talk about human achievement. So with these things in mind, and just thinking about the position of Egypt in the world at this time, let's read the passage. I'll read it. And consider God's threat of judgment that's coming for this kingdom that stood proudly for 2,000 years. And after we read, I'm just going to look at two points. We had 10-point Sunday school, so I feel like maybe we'll, we'll give back a point. Just have two points. I'm, I'm just playing with it. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 19. I'm going to read the whole chapter. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of their idols and their sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be parched and dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile. On the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched. It will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. All who cast a hook in the Nile. And they, they will languish. Who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair. And the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed. And all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. And they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed, may do. In that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt 
When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. And He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. So our two points that I really want to focus on today. God hates human pride and he will judge it in all its forms. God hates human pride and he will judge it in all its forms. And the second point, God's promise of redemption is for all peoples. Today, we're going to look at Egypt, but God's promise of redemption is for all peoples. So I want to start off talking about this judgment God spent all these verses talking about the judgment that he was going to bring on Egypt. And if you, if you look carefully at these, at these verses, you can see that he's, he's hitting Egypt in every point of strength that it has. He's hitting Egypt politically. He's hitting them socially, religiously, militarily, economically. He's hitting them in their wisdom and their leadership. All these things that are the great strengths of Egypt that have, that have been reliable for 2,400 years, God's going to attack each one point by point. Remember that when, when he freed the Israelites from Egypt, how the plagues seemed to each one kind of mock the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. Now God's judgment is going to attack their power in, in all its dimensions. So first of all, in verse 1, we see the Lord's coming himself. It says he's coming. It doesn't say there's a proxy. He's going to come and he's going to turn Egyptians against each other. So their politics is going to break down. It's going to be, it's going to be person versus person, city versus city, and kingdom versus kingdom. Because there were like sub-kingdoms within Egypt. He's going to turn them over to a hard master and a fierce king. So we can see that their, their politics is going to be broken and it's going to be judged and it's going to be taken down. Socially, verse 3 tells us that their spirits will be emptied out. They're going to be defeated to the core. They're going to be left hopeless. What hope will they have? God is going to take them down. And he, and he foretells that what are they going to do when they reach this, this point of bottom? They're going to turn to idols, sorcerers, Mediums and necromancers. Well, we know how God feels about those things. That's not going to work. He's going to drive them to desperation. And then he's going to show them that their false religion offers no hope and no salvation. Because he's going to proceed. He's going to attack them economically. And with natural disasters. That Egypt's water is going to dry up. A great drought. The Nile. The canals from the Nile. The sea itself is going to be dry. The fishermen are going to mourn. That's a very practical thing. People who make their living on the water, if there's no water and the fish are all dead, there's nothing to catch. And all the water that feeds the canals, that feeds the irrigation, if you look at the, a map of Egypt, it's this great desert with this amazing green triangle in it. 
Well, what's the amazing green triangle? It's the Nile Delta. The, the water from that river feeds this amazing, rich landscape of farms. And God's saying, I'm going to take that away. That's been your strength for a couple thousand years. I'm taking it away. There's going to be economic devastation. But he really hits him hard on the wisdom because Egypt had a reputation for being wise and for having knowledge. We marvel today. How did they build this pyramid? And, and we're, we're so impressed by it and so amazed by it that we try to invent crazy stories about UFOs and things. But the truth is, they were smart people. They were wise. And they knew engineering. They knew math. They knew how to organize great numbers of people and make things happen. They were smart. And they had a reputation for wisdom. And they trusted in that reputation. And God's saying, nope, I'm going to take that away. He said, I'm going to sow confusion amongst you. And he says, the princes of Zoan have become fools. Now, Zoan, remember, was the home of the pharaohs, the second home. It was the second capital, uh, also called Tanis. Uh, as I was studying this, it was so interesting, I couldn't help but, but share it with you. Uh, in, if you look at the history of Israel, remember that at the end of uh, David's reign, there was confusion about who was going to take over. But Solomon was declared the king, but there was this rebel named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam wanted to be the king, and he, he talked to a prophet, and the prophet told him, I'm going to tear the kingdom apart. To you, I'm going to give ten tribes, and I'm going to leave the rest to, to Solomon. But Jeroboam was afraid of Solomon, so Jeroboam left. And where did Jeroboam go? This, he went to Egypt. He went and hid, and he stayed with a person, the pharaoh of Egypt. And that, that pharaoh's name was Shoshank, or Shishak in the Bible. Well, here's what's interesting. He lived in Tanis, and his grandson's mummy was found in 1939. So Shoshank II was the grandson of Shoshank, or Shishak, from the Bible. And he was wearing jewelry that his grandfather would have worn when he hosted Jeroboam. It's pretty amazing. And this, uh, this French archaeologist found his actual tomb. It's a, it's a silver casket with this uh, hawk bird uh, kind of headpiece. It's, it's fascinating stuff. I could just look at this all day. But um, it's, it's worth checking out. But this is, this is the connection of God in space and time. He, he operates in, in real human space and real human time. And he leaves these little clues for us. He leaves these real truths that we don't have to believe these things as legends because we can tie them to real history. We see this. But, but Shoshank and Tanis, he harbored Jeroboam from Solomon. Now, that was an ancient city. It had been there for hundreds of years. And, and God is saying, the princess of Zoan, they've become fools. So as wise as they've been and as stable as their leadership has been, not anymore. That's over. I'm taking it away. And he says the princes of Memphis are deluded. Memphis was the ancient capital, right? So the, the most dignified and long-term capital of Egypt, God said, I'm taking that away too. They're deluded. And he says, he, he almost mocks them. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, son of ancient kings, they were so proud of their heritage, right? And we, you might look at it and say, well, rightfully so. Wow, I mean, there's really, there's really no parallel to Egypt's history in the history of the world. So it might be understandable. They're proud of their heritage. 
But God's not impressed. Not at all. He says, how can you say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. God's taking it away. The wisdom is now confusion. It's delusion. So we see God taking it away. Um, I said, remember that the, the pyramids at the time of Abraham were 500 years old. At the time of Isaiah, 1,800 years old. And, and the civilization that built them is still operating. So we see all these ancient things and the civilizations that made them are gone. Right? And we can, we can read about them in textbooks. But, but can you imagine an ancient thing where the civilization that built it is just still going continuously? Amazing. Amazing. No one has defeated it for thousands of years. But God says, it's over. I'm going to bring confusion. He, he compares them to a drunk staggering around in his own vomit. How, how degrading and how humiliating is that? So this nation that has buried all of its kings in these amazing gold things, they, they care about appearances, right? They care about being dignified. God's saying, no, you're more like a drunk staggering around in your own vomit. That's how you're going to be. A drunk staggering around in his own vomit is not a dignified person. He's not a wise person. He's not even a person who knows where he's going or what he's doing or what he did do or what he has said. He knows nothing. He's defenseless. He's even prone to harm himself because he's, he's so helpless in his condition. And that's what God says. That's what your leadership is going to be like. His, their military. Remember, 2,000 years of, st- of stable and sovereign government. They had to have a good military to keep them protected. God's saying, your army's going to be like women trembling in fear. Now that might sound a little offensive today, but in those days, that was a pretty hard insult. That the, the soldiers of your kingdom are going to be like women trembling in fear. That's harsh. And then he top, tops it off by saying, Egypt's going to be terrified by Judah. Judah was not terrifying to Egypt. It never was. But now God's saying, you're going to be terrified by Judah. That's, that's the position you're going to find yourself in. Now, why, why is God doing this to Egypt? Well, Egypt is proud. And God won't stand for it. Egypt has dominated Israel at times. And, and God's going to remind them who's really in charge. Not Israel, but Israel's God. So is it really that he wants to teach Egypt to be afraid of Israel? Mm, he wants to teach Egypt humility, but it's Egypt's, it's Israel's God that Egypt should be worried about, right? The other thing about this is, and, and we'll see this in other places in Isaiah, Egypt is a temptation to Israel. It's actually in chapter 20 right following this. Egypt is a temptation to Israel. Israel is tempted to put their trust in Egypt. They want to make alliances with Egypt to protect themselves from Assyria and Babylon, these guys. And God is saying, no, you don't need alliances. You need me. And I'm going to show you this by humiliating Egypt in front of your eyes. That you don't need me. Or you don't need them. You need me. So God wants, God wants Israel's faithfulness. And he, he does not want Israel to put their trust in Egypt's history, Egypt's power, Egypt's wisdom, Egypt's gods. God's going to humiliate all of those things. So that, so that Israel knows they can trust only God. So what do we take away from this? What's our teaching? 
in this, this great uh, geopolitical thing that God is doing? Well, I would summarize it this way. We must trust in God, not in his gifts. He had given Egypt the gift of stability, the gift of strength, the gift of wisdom, the gift of economic wealth. He'd given Egypt those things for his own reasons. And Egypt had come to trust those gifts, but had forgotten about God. And God is saying we need to trust him, not the things that he gives us. Because God can take it away, and he will if we forget. So I would ask, we need to ask ourselves, how much faith do you put in your heritage, in your family? How much do you put in our status as a nation? We, we talk about being proud Americans. We have a great history, and we have reason to be thankful. Much reason to be thankful. But proud, be careful. God hates pride. Be careful. Grateful, yes. Proud, mm, watch out. Egypt trusted in her economy. For 2,000 years, Egypt had been able to feed herself and sell the surplus to neighboring countries and became rich. Egypt was a wealthy nation. God took that away. How much faith do you put in your skills, in your career? Your salary, your business. And, and honestly, this question can cut both ways. Because when you're successful, you can put a lot of confidence in those things. And if you go through a hard time, then, we're, then we might be tempted to worry too much about those things. Instead of trusting God, we fret and worry. But how much worry and how much trust and how much faith do we put in those economic things in our, in our little world? And how much are we trusting in God? How much faith and trust do you put in, in our Western system of economics? Right? God blesses, but don't worship the gift. Worship the giver. God's crystal clear about that. There are systems that are better than others, but we don't worship a system. We worship God. We trust God. Now, Egypt trusted in her wisdom, accumulated over thousands of years. She had no equal in the world. Not, not, not even a close second, right? God took it away. So I would ask us, how much faith do we put in our own knowledge, in our experience? If Egypt had, talk about experience, Egypt had the experience on anybody. And we might think, well, our experience informs the truth for us. We might think our common sense informs us. But if the scripture says one thing, and your heart and your common sense and your experience are telling you something different. Which one do you trust? Do you trust the scripture? Or do you trust your experience and your heart and your common sense? Because sometimes they don't agree. And, and we need to challenge ourselves. Trust the scripture. That's God's word to us. And that's hard to do. It's hard to put aside your own thinking and your own wisdom. And trust what God is saying to us in His Scripture. But that's what He calls us to do. And if we fail to, He might just take it away. Like He did to Egypt. Because He wants to draw us. Egypt trusted in her military that had defended and successfully conquered others for thousands of years. And God took it away. Egypt trusted in her kings and leaders that had guided her and kept her sovereign for thousands of years. God took it away. How much faith do you put in political leaders and movements? It's fine, to be, it's fine to be involved. It's fine to care. It's good to care. It's good to do our part. But we trust God. 
That's who we trust. And we, we be careful about leaders that can lead us astray. About leaders who can fall and not do right. We trust in God, not in people. And when we are in a position of leadership, we be faithful, but we trust God. We pray for His wisdom. So, that was point one. God judges pride. He hates pride and He judges it. But point two is this beautiful, beautiful passage at the end. God, God promises redemption. And this to me is very unexpected in this passage, but it's, it's beautiful. So what follows the terrible passage of judgment? God's going to attack them one by one, strength by strength. He's going to take them down. This amazing passage of redemption, God speaks to Egypt just like He speaks to Israel. He promises a Savior and Defender to Egypt. He promises that the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians and that the Egyptians will turn and know the Lord and worship Him. Remarkable. He promises they will return to the Lord and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. As if this were not amazing enough, He caps it by saying this, which this must have been unthinkable to the Jews around Isaiah. If you just think about the context, Isaiah writing this stuff down and saying, hey, I, I wrote this. God gave it to me. What do you think? It must have been shocking. Let me, I'm going to read from verse 24 and 25. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Can you imagine, can you imagine the reaction that, that Isaiah's readers and, and friends got when he shared that with them, saying, Isaiah, what are you writing? I think we're going to stuff you in a tree and cut you in half. Which they did, by the way, later. But, but this is the thing. When, when prophets speak truth, it isn't always what we expect, right? Because what would, what would a, a Jew of that time have expected words about Assyria and Egypt to be? We've seen a lot of judgment. That probably was, was quite welcome. Yeah, judgment of, of our enemies? Yes, God, bring that. But what is this? This is sharing in the blessing, sharing in the promise with these Gentile nations, these pagan nations. Amazing, truly astounding that God would say such things. But the faithful Jews who remembered Scripture, they shouldn't have been all that surprised really, should they? Because if they look back in Genesis 12, they would see that God's intention from the very beginning for the nation of Israel through Abraham was that all the nations would be blessed. Right? It's easy to forget that little, that little thing that happened back there with Abraham when you're focused on your nation. But God said, through you all nations will be blessed. That was His promise to Abraham that carried on. Right? Faithful believers would also remember what He told Moses. He told Moses, when Moses asked, can I see you? And God passed by and God introduced himself to Moses in this amazing little passage. He describes himself to Moses. And one of the things that he said is, I will, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's God's choice who he wants to be merciful to. And guess what? God has chosen to show mercy on Egypt in this passage in Assyria. So less than a hundred years, talking a little bit, just a little bit about fulfillment. 
Uh, and I don't have time to go into that because uh, that's quite a rabbit hole in and of itself. But less than 100 years after Isaiah wrote these words about the coming judgment on Egypt, the Assyrians conquered Egypt and began the humbling of Egypt that has not relented until even today. Today, if you look at Egypt, uh, it's, it's not in really a good condition. And it hasn't really been much of a sovereign state really since Assyria came and took them. They've, they've had a, sub, a succession of conquering empires that have just overrun them. Um, when, when Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled to Egypt, this is kind of interesting to think about. And this is ancient for us, a couple thousand years ago. When Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled to Egypt, the Pharaoh at the time was a Roman. He was a Roman. He answered to Caesar. So they weren't sovereign. Today when we think of Egypt, we think of two Egypts, really. At least I do. We think of the, the magnificent ancient civilization that built the pyramids and all these wonders. And then we think of the modern broken society of Egypt. Because Egypt is not in a good place right now. Plagued by poverty, poverty, corruption, and Islamic oppression. It's tragic. It really is. Though the nation has been humbled though, there's a remnant of believers. And, and the scripture here promises a remnant. There's a remnant of believers in Egypt who worship the one true God. The remnant has been there for a long time, some of them. As I studied for today's message, I was just caught up in, in researching this, understanding it. Um, but Isaiah said that there would be cities that speak the language of Canaan and offer sacrifices to the Lord. I'll share with you a couple things I, I learned. One of them I knew about, one of them I did. But from archaeology, we know of actually two Hebrew temples that existed in Egypt. In, in the nation of Egypt. Uh, one, was, one was on an island in the Nile, in the very, very south of Egypt, called Elephantine Island. Um, we don't know a lot about it. We know some things about it. But it was, there was a Jewish community on that island, and they had a temple. Um, and, this, and this happened after the days of Isaiah. Later, there was another, there was another uh, temple built up north in the Delta region of Egypt um, also. Both of them were, were Jewish temples. So do you speak, think they were speaking the language of Canaan? Well, sure they were. They're Jewish temples. Exiles out there. And God said that that's what would happen. Are they doing sacrifices? Yeah. Are they fulfilling vows? Yeah. That's what God said would happen. So that's really interesting. Um, it was a Roman pharaoh, actually, who ordered 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt... Alexandria named for Alexander the Great, who, who was one of the conquerors of Egypt. Um, so he, kind of like King James, King James ordered the, uh, the Bible to be translated, and we have this King James Version. Well, Ptolemy, the Roman pharaoh, ordered the Septuagint to be created. It's called the Septuagint because there were 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria, and he said, go make me a Greek translation. So they made a Greek translation of the Old Testament. What's fascinating is that a lot of the quotes that we see for Jesus in the red letters in your Bible, they're Septuagint. And so even that, even that translation that came out of Egypt was influential, and, and Jesus often quoted that and used it. Um, later, after Jesus came and his apostles began to spread out, what happened? Well, Mark went to Egypt and set up the church there. And the church grew and spread and thrived. 
Alexandria went from being a center of, of pagan Egyptian learning to be a center of Christian theology. It was hugely important. And I, I remember a couple weeks ago, um, Adam was telling us about his, his trip where he got to go see where Augustine lived. And that's not in Egypt, but it's not that far away, you know, just a few hundred miles west in, in Hippo in Algiers. But that's, uh, it's fascinating what happened to that region because Jesus' apostles went and spread the gospel out there. And boy, it took root. It took root. So when, when God is promising here that the people are going to know me, they knew him in fullness. They were Christian believers with the Holy Spirit studying the word, loving the word, and spreading the gospel from Egypt. It's fascinating. It's, it's, it's more than fascinating. It's just beautiful. Now, how does all this apply to us? Because it's interesting. And, and we don't... We don't want to just have a, an academic lecture. We want to see how does this word speak to our hearts and what do we do with this? And I would say in this passage of judgment, we saw how we need to attack our own pride before God does. Right? In this passage, in the history that followed, we can see that not only should we trust in God, because God commands us to trust in Him. He, he desires that we trust in Him. But guess what? He gives us good reason to trust in Him. So he condescends to kind of address our weakness and our lack of faith by showing, here I made a promise, here I fulfilled my promise. Here I made a promise, here I fulfilled my promise. People, you can trust me, right? Because I'm a promise keeper. That's what he's telling us with all this. He lays out promises, he keeps his promises. And then he asks us to trust him. And it's not unreasonable, is it, to trust someone who keeps their promises? Because he's not unreasonable. But our job is to trust Him and to obey Him when He speaks. So as we get ready to conclude, um, if uh, the musicians want to come up, we, we can see that God decided to show mercy on Egypt. Um, he told Moses, I will, I'll have mercy on him, I'll have mercy. And then He tells Isaiah, I'm going to have mercy on Egypt. But the thing is, he's also decided to have mercy on us. This, this culmination of God's promise to Abraham, to Israel, to Egypt, the great promise was the coming of his son, Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all these promises. He is God who came to live among us. He is also the perfect man, the perfect obedient man. He knows our temptation, he knows our frailty, but he's overcoming. He's our brother. He's our friend. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. He paid the price for our sin when he died on the cross. He demonstrated his power. He demonstrated victory when he rose from the dead. And he promises, and remember that we can believe his promises and trust his promises, and he promises redemption to those who just believe him. That's what he wants, to be believed. He tells us that Abraham believed God and that was counted as righteousness. The belief. Of course, Abraham obeyed out of his belief. But the belief was counted as righteousness. He wants to be trusted. And he gives us reason to trust him. But we can believe him because he keeps his promises. And we can love him because his promises are good. 